Good afternoon, everybody. I may be a new face. I'm probably a new face to all of you. I'm meeting some of you. I'm Andy Wyatt. I'm the new uh, mid-adults pastor here at First Pres. Uh, This is my third week on the job, so I'm still learning, uh, still meeting people, uh, but uh, thank you for, well, not that you had a choice, but thank you for uh, having me here today uh, to speak. I I was here a couple of weeks ago, so I know I've met a good deal of you. Um, I wanted to make a couple announcements before we pray and get started. Uh, Some of you may know uh, Virginia Adams uh, passed away uh, from a stroke. She was a member here at FPC, and the way I understand it, she was a pretty regular attender here at the Wednesday lunch. So um, the funeral is on Friday. Uh, It's my understanding they haven't landed on a place yet where it's going to be. I think that's going to be in the paper tomorrow. Uh, That's what I've been told, unless someone knows any more about that. Uh, all of you probably know at this point, John Kinzer's mother-in-law passed away, uh, I believe. Is a service on Friday as well for her up in Michigan or Indiana? I think there's some, <laughs> no, we're not sure exactly, but I believe it's Michigan. Anyway, just want to let you know about that. Uh, let me pray for us and bless uh, our food and we'll get started. Dear Lord, we thank you for this, uh, this afternoon. Thank you for this food you've given us. We thank you for this time now. Would you open our hearts and minds to your word and the truth of it? Thank you for this time of fellowship. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's my understanding that uh, John, maybe this summer and uh, and a little bit in the spring, has been doing a series somewhat on wisdom. Is that right? Biblical wisdom. Uh, I'm not going to use that term, but it, it, we're going to be talking this, uh, this afternoon about prayer. Uh, obviously, it's very wise for us to pray. It's wise for us to take our cares and concerns to the Father. He is very able and willing to work in the situations of our life. This passage today is a familiar one. It's Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9, a phrase that you're probably familiar with, the peace that passes understanding. Uh, it's a wonderful thing. <laughs> what does it mean exactly? We pray for peace. We ask that God would give us hope and joy and peace in our life and the stressful circumstances. Paul even says in this passage for us to be anxious about nothing. Boy, that'd be great if I could be anxious about nothing, right? Uh, I can, you almost wonder, Paul, did you really live life before? Did you know that how stressful and hard life can be? Well, it's a directive he gives us, so there's an expectation that we will receive power and be able to do something like that. So let me read for us. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. 4 through 7 is where we'll really focus, uh, but 4 through 9 is what I'll be reading. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray again. Lord, we ask that you would illuminate our hearts and minds to your word. We thank you for it. We thank you that it is true, that all of it is true. 
Lord, would you teach our hearts to have joy in you, and would you give us the peace that passes understanding to guard our hearts? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <coughs> Imagine most of you have at least heard the name Frank Barker. Uh, Frank Barker uh, planted Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama, a big PCA church there. I heard a story about Frank Barker not long ago uh, told by Brian Chappell. I believe he even writes about this in his book. Brian Chappell, until about a year ago, was the president of Covenant Seminary, our denomination seminary in St. Louis. And uh, Dr. Chappell tells the story that when he had just been elected president of Covenant Seminary, he was very excited but very overwhelmed at this uh, obligation uh, that he had. And so he drove down to Birmingham, and he wanted to talk to Frank Barker about what he should do now that he was the president of this seminary. He knew that the denomination and the seminary was facing challenges, and so he wanted to talk to Dr. Barker about this. So he gets down to Birmingham. He takes Dr. Barker out to lunch, and he, he just lays it all out there. This is what I'm frustrated this is well, how I'm nervous, I'm excited, what do I need to do? I need your advice. So after about 10 minutes, Frank Barker looked at Brian Chappell and said, well, we need to pray about this. <laughs> and so they did. They prayed about it. Six months ago, I sat in Frank Barker's office at Briarwood. I was looking for a new call in ministry. I was very excited about it, but also it was scary. Well, where are we going to go? Where is the Lord going to take me next? And so in the same way that Dr. Chappell had it, Dr. Barker, who can you put me in contact with? How can I do this? What should I do? And all of this 10 minutes of complaining and, and worry. You know what he said to me? Andy, we need to pray about this. There's a theme here from his life. In Dr. Barker's office, if he was to look up from his desk, right in his line of sight, there's a cross stitch on his wall that says two words. The thing looks 500 years old. Right in his line of sight, it says, ask him. Every time he looks up from his desk, ask him, whatever it is, if there's a trial, a struggle, a sermon, a pastoral issue, ask him, ask him. Imagine if something like that sat in front of my line of sight for years and years and years, how impactful that would be. Always being reminded to ask him, taking everything that we have to him in prayer, Charles Spurgeon says that he knows of no better thermometer to the spiritual temperature than the measure of the intensity of our prayers. Prayer is important. We all know that, right? (laughs) Often or sometimes our prayer life is very vigorous and we spend a lot of time in it and then times that it's not, right? And typically that involves in whatever's going on. If we're in a very stressful time, we pray a lot, right? I really need him right now. (laughs) And then things start getting better when we back off our prayers. Paul, I believe, lays out three things for us in this passage. He tells us the motivation for prayer, he tells us the reason for prayer, and then he gives us the result of prayer. So number one, what's the motivation? Well, the motivation is joy. More specifically, perhaps a lack of joy that we have in Christ. Why do we need to be motivated to pray? Because we really don't have a joy in Christ, says Paul. Paul begins this section by saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. Have joy in him always. Now keep in mind where Paul is when he's making these claims. He's not cruising around town with his friends grabbing coffee, you know, going on shopping trips. He's he's sitting on the floor of a Roman prison. And he tells us and his hearers, Rejoice 
Always, all the time, no matter the circumstances. Always, not usually, but always. <laughs> there are no loopholes here. Paul is not telling us to rejoice in our circumstances. What does he say? Rejoice in the Lord. He's not telling us to be happy about the things that are not going right in our life, but rejoice in the Lord in the midst of those circumstances. Well, how do we do that? Why do we do that? He's saying that even though perhaps your life is falling apart and you can't seem to catch a break, there's still calls for joy in the Lord because the Lord's coming again as he promised to do, and it ought to have us put into focus or put into perspective our anxieties he's going to mention in just a minute. The joy of the Lord, the fact he's coming again to take us to be with him, should put all of our momentary and earthly circumstances into perspective. The joy of the Lord truly is our strength. It is our motivation. Ups and downs of life hit us very hard, but it's as if Paul is giving us this, it's almost like he's saying a defiant nevertheless. It looks at our circumstances of life and says, I'm not ignoring them. I'm not closing my eyes and hoping they go away. I'm looking in them and saying, yes, that's hard and difficult, but nevertheless, I have reason for joy in the Lord anyway because we're in Christ. This isn't a luxury of, a Christ, of the Christian life. It's a necessity, isn't it? Amen. We've all faced hardship. And to know that you're in him and to know that one day you're going to spend eternity with him, that really does help, doesn't it? It helps get you through the day, get you through the trial. It's not a call to cheer up. It's not a call to let go and let God, which is an often used popular phrase. It's a call to trust in him. Where do you often turn for comfort and joy? We want to turn to ourselves. We want to turn to our friends. We want to turn to our money. But all these will let us down. <clears throat> I recently read uh, a book uh, entitled Man's Search for Meeting. It was written by Viktor Frankl. It's not a Christian book. Viktor Frankl uh, was a psychologist, German psychologist. And he was in the concentration camps in World War II. Uh, started in Auschwitz, and then I think he got transferred to Dachau. Anyway, the book that he wrote, the first half of it was his experience in the concentration camp. The second half was his practice as a psychologist once he had been released. And the first part, it's only looking at the concentration camp from a psychological perspective. He just he was reporting what he saw, the, psych, the, psych, the psychology of, of someone who was there in the concentration camp. And he said that everyone there went through three stages. The first stage was just you're shocked. You can't believe what, that you're there. You can't believe what you're seeing. You can't believe what's going on. And then he said the second stage, which was the longest stage, and the stage that often led to people's death, was apathy. I just, this is my lot in life. There's nothing I can do about this. I'm going to die here. And then the third stage, which is not everyone reached the third stage, but it was trying to reincorporate yourself back into regular life. How did these people who had been through something so horrific make, it, make themselves back, uh, turn back into a normal life, into a normal citizen again? He said what was interesting. He had many conversations with folks in the concentration camp, and he would ask them, what are you most excited about once you get out? T tell, me, tell me the thing you're looking forward to the most. And most of them would say they were excited about seeing their spouse or they were excited about seeing their children or a friend. Some might say that they were excited to, to have a, a meal at their favorite restaurant. Now, once Frankel had been liberated, 
he would then go back to those friends who had longed for that one thing when they were finally taken from the concentration camps. And he said in every single instance, they were disappointed. The relationship wasn't there, or it wasn't as sweet as they hoped it would be. The meal wasn't as good. The, the freedom that they had longed for, it just wasn't as good as they wanted it to be. Isn't that how we are with the things that we long for in our life? We so badly want one more rung of the corporate ladder. <laughs> one more, if I could just make a little bit more money, if I could just lose five more pounds, if I could just get that boy or that girl to like me, right? If I could just wit one step further in life, then I'd be happy, then I'd be able to praise God as I need to. But we're only attaching joy to our circumstances, aren't we? Not attaching it to the Lord. The circumstances of life beat us down. We cannot wallow in despair. We look to Christ, who gives us that defiant nevertheless and tells us we can hope in him. So that's the motivation for prayer. We have to have joy. And it's got to be joy in the Lord, not joy in our circumstances. Secondly, there's a reason for prayer. The motivation behind prayer is joy. However, the joy in the Lord is not always an accurate way of describing us, is it? <laughs> we wish it were. But notice the progression of thought here. We're called to rejoice in the Lord because the Lord is at hand. Okay? So as a result of this joy, do not be anxious about anything. Joy in the Lord is not always indicative of us. What's more typical is stress, anxiety, and worry. That's why Paul mentions that here. So as an antidote for this anxiety, we pray. Each and every day, we pray. We cast our cares upon Jesus, who is able and willing and capable to work in the situations of our life. We leave our worries and our stress as if we, as we take them and drop them off at the feet of Jesus and go about our way. He will take care of them for us. But what do we do in times of stress and anxiety, and when anger comes, when doubt comes? I bet all of us in here fall into one of two categories. Some of us run and tell everybody our business, don't we? <laughs> we're stressed out, we're hurt, we're angry. And so we go over here and get advice from this person, then we get advice from that person, and we get advice from that person. And the Lord absolutely uses our friends to encourage us, to rebuke us. But really now just everybody knows your business and you really haven't been helped much. Or you're like me. When something stressful and difficult happens in life, you don't want to tell anybody about it. <laughs> You want to sit in your room and have a pity party for one, right? Instead, Paul is calling us to look upward, to take our needs and desires to him, to sit at Jesus' feet and say submissively, Lord, this is what I want and this is what I need, but I want your will to be done and I want you to be glorified. I submit my will to yours. Because in every situation of life, you really have two choices. You're facing a tough decision Something's not going right. All your hopes and dreams have been dashed. Life is not turning out the way that you hoped it would. So you have two choices. You can trust in God or you cannot. You can trust in his will or you cannot. It seems too simplistic, doesn't it? But consider it this way. We can trust in God, the creator and redeemer and sustainer of this world, the one who has provided for us a million times before, the one we could, we could all in a procession come up here and share stories of wonderful grace and mercy that the Lord has had upon our life. Now what makes us think he won't provide for us again? He's done it so many times. He proved himself faithful. 
yet we still have anxiety and worry and doubt. So we can trust in the one who's done this, or we can trust in ourselves who's finite and sinful and who gets it wrong. We can either wallow in our self-pity and despair, or we can trust the sovereign and almighty God. I don't know what's going to happen in the situations in your life. I'm not, going to, I'm not offering any explanations as to why God allows things to happen to us. But I know that my joy can't be in my circumstances, and it must be in my Savior. Our joy must be in him and not in our circumstances. So Paul tells us, the cure for anxiety, we all have it, the stress, it's prayer. It's not inaction, it's not sitting around saying, oh, God's going to take care of it. We're actively praying to him that he would help us. So the reason for prayer, the antidote, as I mentioned earlier, for anxiety and stress is this prayer. This is one of those things you say that the rebuttal can often be, well, that's easier said than done, isn't it? <laughs> Great, I'll just say some prayers and all, all my hopes and dreams are going to come true. That's not what it's saying. Your praying is not just to get God to do what you want him to. Now, that's part of prayer. You're asking him for help, for health, or whatever it may be. But it's also admitting to him, I can't do anything about this, Lord, but you can. Will you help me? Will you glorify yourself? (laughs) Would you give me more hope and trust? We say this is easier said than done, but have you tried it? Have you really committed to a life of praying to him? So finally, the result of prayer. The result of prayer, as Paul says in verse 7, is a peace that passes understanding. As I mentioned in the, uh, at the beginning, that sounds awesome, doesn't it? <laughs> Great, where, where can I get this peace that passes understanding? This peace is, it's not, you've all felt it, haven't you? A comfort that comes upon you in a situation where you shouldn't feel it. It's not something that you can really explain, but you certainly can't explain it away either, can you? What does peace mean here? It's not just an inner feeling of calm or a sense of being at peace. The Old Testament word for peace is shalom, which means wholeness. It's a relational word, talking about the relationship between God and man. So what does this peace do? Don't miss this. I think I've missed this many times in reading this passage. The peace that passes understanding, it's not a calm feeling. What is it? It does something. It guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We're not claiming that God does something mystical here. We might not be able to explain it, but it says a peace that guards your heart. What does that mean? It's as if peace stands at at the door of our hearts and says, no anxiety and worry, you're not welcome here. There's a peace that has been prayed for that is now here, that guards your hearts and minds. It protects our desires and our inclinations. And the only way for it to continue is if we continue to pray for it. This peace is not ignorance of circumstances. It's not apathy towards them. It's not a refusal to see the seriousness of what's going on. It's that defiant, nevertheless. I'm going to have joy in the Lord. Yes, there are problems in our life that seem big and even insurmountable. But you know what? God has orchestrated every single one of those in your life for his plan and his purpose and his glory. And all we can do is look back to him and say, thy will be done. 
What an odd response to compare to a world that would not react the same way. When we pray, we're affirming the sovereignty of God, as I mentioned earlier. God is in control of our lives, and we are not. He rules over even the minute, most minute of details. And when we pray, coming to God with our doubt and fear, we're confessing that he is able to step in. Let me close with this illustration. The, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, you're prob- many of you are probably familiar with that name. He was the senior pastor of historic 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And he died from liver cancer on June the 15th of 2000. And upon receiving his diagnosis, he addressed his congregation, the congregation that had beloved him for so many years. And he, came, he stood in the pulpit and he said, many of you have asked what you can do. And he said, I would just ask that you continue to do what you, I know you've already been doing, and that's pray for me. And then he said, some of you have asked, how can we pray? Should we pray for a miracle? And Dr. Boyce said, you're free to do that. He said, but miracles are a very rare thing. By definition, they don't happen very often. He said, but above all, I'd ask you to pray for the glory of God. Because where in history did God most glorify himself? In the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed that the cup of suffering would pass from him. That he wouldn't have to go through the cross and the suffering that was sure to come soon. And God said, no. I'm not going to deliver you from that because if I did, then all of our sins would not be paid for and we'd be going to hell. He didn't relieve that suffering because that suffering was for us. That suffering was paying the penalty for our sin. Praise the Lord for that. Dr. Boyce went on. He said, when things come into our lives, they're not accidental, as if God somehow forgot or he was asleep at the wheel. God does everything according to his will. God is not sovereign over our lives and at the same time indifferent. He's in charge and he cares, and everything that he does is good. And he closed by saying this. He said, my prayer for you is that, Roman, is that of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that you would have a renewal of your minds and change the way you think about things. And he said, God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. Is his, good, is his will good, pleasing, and perfect to you? It is good, pleasing, and perfect, but do you find it that way? Or is it just frustrating and hard? If God does something in your life, would you change it? He said, I promise you'd make it worse if you did. His will is good, pleasing, and perfect, and yours is not. And that's the way I want us to move forward as a church. Accept this diagnosis and move forward, for who knows what God will do. What a powerful response in the midst of a difficult circumstance. This man was far more concerned with the glory of God than his own comfort. A man who clearly had the utmost joy and hope and confidence in the Lord. He knew he had cancer. He knew the diagnosis. He knew the chances of him getting better were slim to none. But that's not where his joy was found. His joy was found in the Lord. He had no reason for fear. I believe that a lot of problems in this world, and especially in the church today, would be solved if we would stop being so afraid. If we would stop fearing. If we, because our joy is not in what we can see. Our joy is in the Lord. Our joy is in, he's coming again. He's coming again to take us to be with him. 
We have every reason for peace and calm in the midst of trials, but are you praying for it? Are you asking for it? Pray that the joy in the Lord will be your typical response. No, we're not going to get this perfect. No, we're going to, yes, we're going to have anxious moments. It's not a call to never do anything wrong. It's a call to take our, tr- our struggles and our trials to him and pray that God would guard your heart and mind with his peace, the peace that passes understanding. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, this is a very encouraging passage, but also very challenging. It's encouraging, Lord, because you tell us that if we have joy in you, that you will give us a comfort and a peace that passes understanding. I know all of us long for that. We feel strangled by the struggles of life. As if we can't concentrate on loving and serving you, we're so focused on other things. You don't ask us to ignore what's going on in our lives, but you do tell us to put it in perspective because you are in control and you love us. Would you give us confidence and faith in you, we pray. We thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your word. And thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.